Hi everyone, welcome to Like A Real Book Club, a podcast from Rebel Women Lit, where we talk about books and just about everything else. I'm Jerrine. I'm Christina. And I'm Ashley. Today we are recapping A Tall History of Sugar by Cordella Forbes. We read this in, I keep getting the dates wrong now that we are in quarantine all the time. We read this in the April. April. Yeah, it was the April Book Club book and it was... We had a book club meeting and there were so many mixed reviews about this book while everyone loved a lot of the writing and language. There are a lot of mixed reviews about the plot. So I'm very interested to hear from Christine and Ashley about how they felt about different aspects of the book. And I'll also share how I felt about it as well. Uh, So Christina, how about you give us a summary of the book? In A Tall History of Sugar... Cordella Forbes walks us through the complex and multi-layered impact of colonialism, racism, and, well, sugar on Caribbean people, their physical bodies, their notions of nationhood, of self, of spirituality, and just about everything in between. The story is told through the experiences of and relationships between a diverse, rich, textured group of characters. We meet Moshe, who's the central protagonist, though I also consider Aryan a protagonist. I think everybody would. Moshe is a pale-skinned, two-tone-haired man who was found by his mother Rachel one morning in the sea at Oracabessa Centenary immediately were introduced to the fierce no-nonsense and strong-willed personality of Rachel and the uniqueness and mystery that is Moshe and his existence. Uh, We later meet Arian and quickly come to realize that she shares an intimate and telepathic relationship with Moshe. She's extremely smart, so is Moshe. She's a taekwondo fighter and she's also designated herself as Moshe's advocate against the harsh vitriolic curiosity and ignorance of children at their school. And we later come to realize that that advocacy becomes a passion for Arian. Importantly, though, we get to witness this relationship as it grows from their toddler years to adulthood and just the curves, dips and valleys that shape that relationship. When I first started reading the book, there is something about the style and the use of the Creole that uh, I felt like it wasn't necessarily targeted towards a Caribbean or a Jamaican reader. I don't know. There was it the, the explanation right after I didn't like at first. But as I started reading the book more, I felt like it was really for a reader like me where I am from the country that the the um characters are based in and like there are so many different parts of the landscape and just Jamaican culture in general that was identifiable and that was just funny. I really like how Cardello. I think she made her characters really funny and like there were parts in the book where I actually like laughed out loud, which was great because I feel like I don't necessarily do that a lot in books. And so to have a book that makes me laugh is is uh, a plus. Um, but full disclaimer, I haven't finished the book just yet. 
I'm about halfway through. Um, it has been a little challenging for me to read it. Um, but uh, I liked it. I would recommend it to someone who likes reading and just like wants a good read about like Jamaican history. My favorite character was Rachel. I think she was a badass character. Um, I keep telling you guys how, like, just the, how iconic she was to just decide that she was a Yahweh because she got it in, like, she read something in news in a newsletter that she got from overseas, and she was just like, "Yep, this is me. Identify as that." I mean, she come from a small town or by the sea, I think, or Cabeza by the sea. And uh, nobody was a Yahweh's, nobody identified as that. There was no Yahweh's church, and she was just like, This is who I am. And I like that. Um, and uh, it's always really good when you see books about uh, places that you know, or maybe you don't know in detail, but like you can visualize on pages in books. It does something about. Uh, there's something about representation that we've discussed over and over again that is just very validating. And so I'm grateful to have seen characters like Rachel and um, Ari and, um, God, I'm forgetting Rachel's husband's name. Noah? Noah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah In, Noah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah, being written onto pages like that because we are decolonizing our bookshelves guys and we are throwing away all the books that have white main characters in them okay not throwing away but we are choosing books that have or highlight people like us in it and so I, I was it was a welcome and refreshing addition and uh, I will finish reading it can't remember if I mentioned it on the podcast, but I think I mentioned it to you that at first when I was reading it, I got very annoyed with conversations and dialogue that would happen in Pato. And then right after there was an explanation about the Pato. And for me, it just felt so, it felt repetitive. It felt like it didn't, it wasn't made for me. And after a while, I started like about... 15 or so percent into the book I realized that it wasn't a direct translation of it it was actually a lot of it became snide remarks about what we actually mean when we say these things and I started enjoying it to the point where I realized that the translations of the language wouldn't happen and I don't know if it was intentional but it felt like she was teaching you Jamaican, not just Jamaican language in the way that it's spoken, but Jamaican language in terms of its culture, the history, the the humor of our language, the cynicism of our language, a lot of the attitudes that come across with just how we talk. It felt like that was what the translations at the beginning were about. And at the end, they're, they're very sparse, if any, translations, because you've almost been inducted into the Jamaican language. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but that's what it felt like reading this book. And I really, really enjoyed that Paswa wasn't limited to just the dialogue. It was also part of the narratives that 
the, their narrator speaking would code switch very frequently. And I think that's something that we, it has happened before in Caribbean literature. Generally, we have like Sam Selvon does that and a few other Caribbean writers having our language, not just in dialogue, but parts of the way the narrator would speak to the reader in the way the characters would think. And I think that's so vital because even a lot of contemporary Caribbean writers who do amazing jobs with capturing our language in dialogue would immediately code switch to writing the rest of prose in British Standard English or Jamaican Standard English. And I, I, I always find it curious because I don't, if you're, for me anyways, I think in both Patois and English. And quite often when I am speak or when I'm speaking Patois, my thoughts will also be in Patois. And there's a mixture. So why why isn't our writing like that? So I really enjoyed that that happened in this book. It felt a lot more authentic to me. I really loved the fluidity of spirituality and understanding that that's what our Caribbean spaces look like, where we have a connection with the spirituality, even if we won't call it that, that is not grounded in a naturalist world. I love that. I loved Ari. I loved Rachel. I loved Ari's political involvement. I love how she was so protective of Moshe. And yeah, it was a nice story. I, I don't know if the plot of the story stood out to me as much as a lot of the themes, a lot of the the writing of it. I don't think I'm going to remember a lot of the plot details as much as I remember the way the book makes me feel. And a lot of the very, very strong commentary that would have been done on race, religion, uh, colonialism, or history, and how it was presented at such a unique angle. It was not the slavery book I thought it would have been based on the title. It was not the birth of the nation book I thought it would have been, yet at the same time it is because our political history or understanding of history is just a collective understanding of different individual histories and we just unfortunately tend to focus on the people we consider the most important in those times to say that this was a defining moment in history. So I really enjoyed it. I I thought it was a beautiful, tall history of our our nation and our understanding of our identities. So, yeah, it was a solid four to five star book for me. I'd really just be echoing both your sentiments in terms of my feelings for the book. Um, I really love really good writing. And I thought this was such excellent writing. It's so beautiful. Um, I, I don't know how she does it, but it was just really beautiful. There's this flow to it that I sincerely enjoyed. Um, But more importantly, like Jereen said, a lot of the themes that emerged from this book, and I'm only like 51% in, but a lot of the themes that emerged from the book, I thought Cordella did such an excellent way of weaving it in 
especially into just the everyday life of Jamaicans, how imperialism and colonialism, how, like the title of the book said, it the legacy is extremely tall and it presents itself in, um, in the lives of people. Oftentimes we look at the systemic ways in which colonialism has impacted um, formerly colonized countries and here she is demonstrating through um, through behavior, through um, diet, uh, through the way we interact with people, how, um, how long-lasting these um, colonialism, um, its impact, its legacy has been on people. And I really, I really appreciated that because, again, it, it, it's written in a way that we, well, that I had never read before. It wasn't these huge abstract um, concepts that were then being extrapolated or explained or demonstrated. It was here are the lives of these people who were not directly involved in enslavement, but who enslavement and colonialism has changed their bodies, their minds, their ways a lot. And I sincerely appreciated the infusion of uh, spirituality um, in this book. It wasn't in a way where it was uh, an external piece or an attachment. It was completely a part of who they are and that's the reality of it like that's real that's how that's how Jamaicans are even some of the staunchest of Christians um, today will still rely on and fall back on so many um, so many um, spiritual things and we spoke we would have talked about this several times before but you know simple things like my dream see or you know say if your dream see fish somebody pregnant or you know say if a dream say old dead it mean new dead soon come just simple things like that and the infusion of of these people living those sort of spiritualities i really 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 enjoyed that bit um and just like ashley said i was really heartened by the well that both of you said I was really heartened by the use of language in this and I know that I'm a bit of a stickler in terms of how Patois is written or how Jamaican is written in books but I don't know I felt like she she wrote it in such an authentic way not just in terms of its spelling either like I'm not talking about just the spelling but the ways in which we would speak it or that rural Jamaicans would speak it because it sounds exactly like how my cousin where live up Portland, how they'd speak, how my mother um, speaks sometimes when her Portland Jamaican chips in in between her Kingston um, learned Jamaican. And so I sincerely appreciated that. And it's such a smart book too. And we've been reading a lot of smart women um, since the year has started um, it's so intelligent, like it's really intelligent and it's very subtle. Like, um, as I said before, it's not an overpowering, here are these huge abstract abstract concepts, let's talk about them. It's just so set, so subtle in its intelligence. And I really, really loved that. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think the subtlety is where a lot of this book wins for me because it deals with it deals with such huge big concepts that we've all heard time and time again and it's okay how are you going to do this are you going to do this new and it's not that she's presenting anything new it's just that she's re-examining what we already know and looking at it from a different angle how do we take these big concepts of nationhood how do we take these big concepts of dealing with colonialism dealing with issues of our economy even dealing with issues of crime issues of sexuality issues of race and how do we look at it not from these top-down big concepts but from the lives of these individuals living in Orokabesa, going to school at Iwi, going to school in the UK coming back and it, it was brilliant yeah and she did not at any point try to hit you over the head with any of these lessons she did not try to say this is why it's important for us to um, pay attention to our spiritual understandings of the world this is what happens when our economies rely too much on tourism or on sugar production or any of that it was it was such the strength of this book lies in how soft it was and I really appreciated that especially with sugar because the title at all history of sugar I would have expected it to be heavily focused on the economies of sugar um what happens with sugar production or historical links to sugar production what does that mean today for us as a country that is in heavy debt a country that sees very slow growth in our economy and she looks at all of this but she also looks at things such as our diet she looks at things in terms of um the actual production what does that mean for a community and she looks at what does this legacy mean in our educational institutions and all of that was just so brilliant and what did you guys think about sugar because i know that i if i reread this book i'm going to pick up on so many other things in terms of how she used sugar to make social commentaries Ashley, I don't know if you want to go. No, you can go ahead. Oh. Um, yeah, I was thinking, so, of course, when you, as Jorane had mentioned, when you read the title, you're thinking or you're expecting to go through the process of uh, um, British imperialism, um, the slave trade, slavery that was the initial expectation but again this level of smartness that she has um i found that sugar so it's very clear that she showed the 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 impact of actual sugar um of the production of sugar in jamaica the ties with that to colonialism but then what she did which i i i think is so great because and wait before I continue. Will this episode drop before or after our interview? Uh, before. Okay, I don't want to ruin it then. 
Um, Yeah, uh, so how sugar has impacted our bodies as um, as Afro-descended people, how um, because of the sort of diets that our ancestors would have had to have um, and how that has passed on generation to generation to end up in something like... Um, a high prevalence of diabetes, which we call sugar. Uh, we see that with Noah, and um, that's actually the, the opening scene of the book where Noah is at the clinic because he needs to get his wound dressed, and that wound is as a result of his diabetes. And we see Moshe, um, his body's entire rejection of literally anything sweet. And what I noticed too, and this is kind of... <laughs> It's kind of far out is that I took sugar to not only mean, you know, actual sugar, but then we use sugar as um as a symbol of colonialism in and of itself and the things that it left with us. So I was thinking about this particular scene where Moshe was, I guess, contemplating on bathing and showering and the difference between bathing and showering and um he was considering why his mother and you know the people that he knew his community was so obsessed with bathing and recognizing that for one it's a result of white supremacy it's it's the idea that as black people you're um, smelly beasts you are savages who are unintelligent and so you don't clean yourselves because you're dirty animals and then it's also um because um enslaved people, the sort of labor that they did under the sort of conditions that they did under the the harshest of summers um, and how that would have impacted their their hygiene. And because um, slavers never did two business about um, enslaved people anyway, so they're not going to get them no kind of soap forbid themselves. But then he brings it back to the fact that a lot of our obsession with cleanliness is it's tied to pride and that pride comes from that long history. It comes from, we want to ensure that wherever we go, we're always clean. Cause we don't want nobody have nothing bad for Sebo. We, we don't want anybody to, to, to have the same sort of commentary that slavers would have about us and how we present ourselves. And we, we see it every day where your mother tell you say, Ensure that you wear clean drawers when you go up on the road because if you drop down a road and them have to carry a girl hospital, you want to ensure say in a good panty, you know, want a hole in another panty. And I think Moshe had said something similar where <laughs> he said something similar where Rachel, where Rachel told no, it wasn't Rachel, it was Samuel, Rachel's brother or something like that. Um, where he said to Moshe that. Uh, when you go up on the road, you must make sure you bathe because, you know, while when you go to hospital and the nurse and the doctor, they must cut off your clothes, that the shame of the dirt of your dirty skin um, embarrass you. And we know, say, by extension of you being embarrassed, you're embarrassing your family, you're embarrassing your community. So that idea of sugar for me was so much more than just actual sugar. It 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 represented the larger legacy of colonialism and how it really infiltrated um, our lives 
infiltrated our diets, our bodies, our physical bodies, our mentality, our spirituality, our morals, you know, and the things that we value. So, yeah. I don't think that's far-fetched at all because there's the point where Moshe goes to art school in the UK, but Rachel, even though Rachel was so strong-minded and so independent, uh, she would never allow him to go to Edna Manley here. But the idea Mm. of him going to art school in the UK was somewhat more prestigious. So he talks about her infection of sugar despite her strong-mindedness and her independence she was still infected with sugar so he talks about sugar in her blood I don't think it's far-fetched at all to say that sugar was the theme in terms of colonialism because Rachel who as badass and complete as she was she was still infected with the ideas of sugar and we can all talk about how yeah we love Jamaica we're so independent blah 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 but someone going in in Moshe's case it was if I went to Enda Mande my like Rachel could not wrap her mind around him studying art and him studying art at Enda she wanted him to go and do something that she could see as being productive but the infection of sugar was so strong that he could do that art in England and it, it was more prestigious than if he did it here. So even if she doesn't completely understand how art could become a career, you have a better chance of it being a career if you didn't do it here. And we see that all the time, even no matter how much you is going to try to tell people that it ranks in the world. We have people that will look at you a lot better if you went to a school that ranks way below UE. But if you did it abroad, if you did it in England even, or you did it in the US, it's it's seen as more prestigious than what happens here. So yeah, sugar was sugar was very revealing. And England seems to carry the heavier weight. Um of course, because we still feel tethered to it and we still feel like anything that's English is more refined, it's more civilized, it's more um, sophisticated. Um, so, yeah, like people look at you with your um, with your whatever degree from you and go, oh, that's cool. But if another person comes into the interview with, as you said, um, a third rate, fourth rate university, as long as it has a UK behind it, it's more acceptable or more palatable and definitely seen as um, higher than whatever degree you would have gotten at UE. Mm, I don't know if I agree with you guys on this point. I mean, I feel like there's definitely truth to it, but uh, I think there's a lot of... uh, um, risk not risk respect or like there's a lot of uh, credibility behind a UE degree especially if it's a particular type of degree so a first class honors here is much better than a whatever and a, a degree from a Bakabush school even if it's in the UK 
but uh, I do think uh, the prestige that is behind this is like oh the ability to travel or to have like a foreign attachment to the person that suddenly makes them like more elevated so but yeah i don't think i i have agree with you guys or where this is concerned mm, i don't know because if i when i tell people i studied abroad it's very different from when i tell people i studied at ue the response is so different regardless of what it is. They don't even want to know what you studied. You studied abroad. For some reason, there is an elevated idea of what I am in their eyes. And it's so ridiculous to me. You become a little more interesting. Yeah. And, but I don't know if it's just travel because it could be people that are well-traveled who also have these ideas of what it is. All right. Like them not where, where I, mm-hmm. I think where I agree with you guys is that uh, we do definitely hold an attachment to like a good, uh, okay, so hmm, how do I frame it in a way? Because I don't know how to frame what I'm trying to say, but like people will be impressed by somebody studying abroad at a Ivy League school, for example, over UA, because it's an Ivy League school. Like, it has way more clout. It has way more, like, notoriety internationally than UA does. But even that is fuckery. I mean, I agree with you. I think that's... I don't think that's right. Less than half of the Ivy League school, less than, like, a proper less than half of people in Ivy League schools actually make it there because of their grades most yeah, Ivy League no, admins are just it's your parents heritage yeah so that in itself is fuckery i know i know but it's uh, it has more weight than going to ue and because of sugar there i think i understand what you mean <laughs> no actually. it really is a lot of the ivy league schools is because of colonialism a lot, like, when you think about where these schools made their money. It's some endowment from um, from a plantation owner. That they still have uh, sculptures of on their school campus. A lot of this prestige for me, even if you're going to say, well, you know, it's, it's Harvard or you don't have to be Ivy League. It could be Oxford versus UWE. At the end of the day, it's fucking sugar. Like that that's the difference. They Ari made a comment in terms of the streets in, in the UK being paved in sugar yeah. as well. And it's that that's the difference. The the difference isn't because it's it's inherently better, it's because historically the only reason they've been able to achieve this prestige is because they actually stole it from you. It's sugar. Your work for yeah. the hundreds of years made this university what it is, and now they laud it over you in terms of it being better. So at the end of the day, to me, Ivy League, it doesn't matter. The, the, the point that we look up to them as being better is fucking ironic because your ancestors actually built that. You can be first-generation yeah. university student. 
yet someone who has legacy acceptances for hundreds of generations Mm -hmm. is because of work that your ancestors did yeah that to me is fucking sugar that 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 is that is fuckery and i think that's why this book is so important because it raises points like that in like by characters like ari when she says that you know the whole the streets of london are paved in sugar because uh, we have that level of uh, i don't know if you want to call it cognitive dissonance as caribbean people um where we do embrace these things because we've been told that they are better and uh, it takes a whole lot of unlearning for you to realize that what we have here is good or just as good sometimes and better. what they have there is because of what we have yeah i mean like i would never forget uh, the time i was learning about haitian history and uh, the the teacher had said that Haiti was paying back debt to France as far back as well not as far back as up to 2010 that France decided to cancel the debt after Haiti had that massive earthquake in 2010 and I was just like what what do you mean because of the inconvenience of what the Haitian revolution did to France as a as a country and France's economy and so literally Haitian money and dollars was used being used to fund elections in France. And you're just like, people, how people talk about Haiti as this this huge cold sore of the Western world and like this 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 country that had was that was pregnant with potential and poor leadership that made it become the way it is. It's like, that's actually not the full story. And you will never get that from reading white books. You'd never ever get it. And so that's why like books like this are extremely important, particularly if you belong to this uh, community of Caribbean people or just you're a part of the diaspora because you realize how much they've been force feeding your lies and you don't even know it. Because I have had to unlearn a lot of that a lot of the the hmm, like the air of importance that is associated with a lot of things that are foreign schools and people and and um products that come from wherever and you're just like yo it takes active effort to to say no it 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 can't only be this this can't just be like this is this doesn't have to be a benchmark, and f- I'm trying to seek out other ways. So, yo, yeah, this book was eye-opening to admit and recognize that so many of these beacons of development are all blood money. Like it's all blood money. All of it is blood. Exactly. L- none of it. Literally, none of it. Literally, and none of it. And trauma. Was create was um created um without the infusion of your ancestors without the infusion of their sweat their blood their trauma their deaths their bodies their mental well-being 
when people talk about, oh, well, my family didn't own slaves. I'm like, I don't give a fuck because benefited. fine, your family didn't directly own slaves, but your entire country benefited Everything from it. That you're you were able to build better public health facilities, better education, better roads, better infrastructure. Your development as a country strongly profited off not just enslavement but colonialism and debt repayment and all of these things so when the destabilization of the colonies that they had exactly so when people talk about oh well it's better in terms of infrastructure in some other places i'm like there's no way we can really come to grasp ideas of reparations without understanding that reparations isn't just money that comes back or oh they're going to give you money and it's like no that's not what it is when you fully grasp how much a country develops As a result of this thing, <laughs> because yeah. of free labor like when people are talking now about um let, let's look at COVID-19 and how able different countries have been able to respond Ugh. because of it when they're able to say well we're giving out grants for xyz all these stimulus checks that are happening. Yeah, you can afford to do that because your reserves have been building up for centuries. And it frustrates me because we don't see that as sugar. We don't see, I think one of the times it hit me the hardest was walking through Liverpool, walking through Edinburgh, walking through all of these British cities and seeing the names, like last names that I'm familiar with on stores on streets and knowing that it's not because they're related to anyone in jamaica it's not because trelawney happens to be just a place in jamaica it's because they owned it they owned you and and this is just remnants of it and for a lot of people it was just investments it was just well i own a stock in this in this company and they trade sugar that's how the mentality of it is so when people say oh well if you went to an ivy league school then i can understand why like no fuck that shit like institutions that we have now competing with institutions internationally have centuries ahead of what they're doing which is why i really love that she included the fact that yui itself was a sugar plantation when they were walking around Yui and looking at the different landmarks and talking about the chapel and all of that, I'm like, this is really fucking important because Yui as an institution today is competing with institutions that have been built because of what Yui is. Irony. <laughs> like that, just the way she did that was just fucking brilliant. Gosh, I love, I <laughs> love the book. Discussing. I love it. Sorry. And I love, and I love that I may be reading into I love it that. a bit more because I am. It is mind blowing. <laughs> um, I'm here thinking about a lot of the research that Caribbean reparationists have been doing. So people like Professor Hilary Beckles and Professor Verin Shepard. One of the things that comes out of the conversation is that uh, there there are quite a few European countries that have attempted to absolve themselves of any sort of involvement in 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 slavery and the trading of people so sweden who's you know one of those countries that are considered very neutral very you know um 
a model nation. Um, Sweden, I think Sweden is one of the countries that produced the sort of irons that were used to make um, chain that was used to make other forms of torture for enslaved people. And it's like, those are the little things that a lot of people aren't making connections with. Um, There are a lot of little ways that a lot of Western countries were completely involved in this. And sorry. And it's one of the, it's again, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the writing in this book. It's how Cardella is showing us these little connections that we never thought about before that wouldn't immediately come to mind when we think about the legacy of imperialism and colonialism and the legacy of this crave, this desire for sugar. And it's just hitting me now that that crave for sugar versus Moshe's complete rejection of it. But anyway, those little connections, those very subtle, small, almost innocent ways that the legacy of colonialism has impacted or has shaped, you know? So for all of the, 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 the white people them who are very convinced that because they had no direct involvement in enslavement, it means that they don't have, one, a debt to pay or that as a result of them not having any sort of direct, direct influence in it, that they shouldn't be they shouldn't be criticized or critiqued for the ways in which they're benefiting. I'm like, nah, fam. The history is there. The receipts are there. There are multiple ways in which your country has benefited. There are multiple ways in which you have benefited. Like these amazing, as you mentioned before, these amazing universal healthcare, universal or well, free education up to the tertiary level in like places like Norway. Like, how do you think you're a- you were able to have that within your country? It's not just because your government is just that much better than these third world countries. No, it's this history of sugar that has allowed your country to be in the position that it is to to afford you these amazing social services. And you know, also the I don't know, the, the level of like brainwashing that is involved in sugar itself because when we think about our educational system and we think about the importation of teachers from England because they were deemed as better to come here and to teach our children and then that, that what that act would have done to the students there i mean moshe's own existence was existence sorry was as a result of um an unconsensual relationship between some white british man and some school jamaican school girl and so like even very recently actually i was having a conversation with some of my co-workers and they were just talking about a levels and o levels and i don't know if i didn't know this but they were talking about how the exams after writing them were sent to england to oxford or wherever to be marked and then sent back and it's like what did you just say you do exams here and they have to go overseas to be reviewed by people who have no connection to you who may not understand how 
you like there is a yes okay we speak english but like there is a way how we might express ourselves that they won't understand or they just they just won't there's always going to be a disconnection between us again what we're talking about earlier about having a a distinction from oh yeah there were my coworkers were saying that you know like if you get a distinction in a levels or a GRE or whatever it is like you don't have to redo some other English exam because if you get a, an A in that then everybody knows that you're really good at English and it's like we we set we set the standards or the bar for ourselves as based on their benchmark and it's just uh, it's it's uh, I mean I guess I don't I guess there's no other way to do it because that's the level of self preservation that we had to be creative and to, to and to create I suppose in like you you make good out of a bad situation I don't know if that even makes sense but like if that's what you have you just have to do it even if it causes you trauma and pain and like depression and it's 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 so it's so frustrating to me that our ancestors just had no choice they had to just roll with the punches and develop a sense of resilience and like internalize so much and so that's why like we have generational illnesses that are associated with the thing that enslaved us and how our language involves to just say like we mentioned this earlier in the podcast but just to say like diabetes as just explain it as just sugar because we just we don't need to pretty it up like just go straight to the point a sugar is what causes it so we don't need to give it a scientific name we know exactly what it is and for us for that to be an issue for black people across the diaspora is is extremely telling of just how entrenched this was and used as a tool to basically fuck up our lives i get why why they had to send it to england to be marked even though they don't understand our expression and that's because it's not just about who teaches us but it's about what's being taught i remember there's a part in the book where ari had said i think she was marveling at the english accent and they said and she said that when they were being taught elocution or it was Moshe that was probably remembering. I don't remember. True, I, mean, I was thinking that. I was thinking that when I said that. <laughs> um, that they had to put a plum in their mouths to mimic the the actual accent of the English the people. Accents. And that I thought that was so... That was so... What's the word I'm looking for? It was, it was just... Mm, it was very... Mm, and it matches with what Ashley is saying in terms of ensuring that we one ensuring that we're passing on our own ideologies we're passing on our own ways of thinking our own ways of literally speaking we want to ensure that these 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 colonies that these plebs that these uncivilized people are being taught um some amount of civilization some amount of um of of high culture um, in the way that they both perceive the world and how they sound whenever they speak. So, yeah, another way that it infiltrates um, and has continued to infiltrate our systems and just who we are. I mean, cultural imperialism is what they do best. 
and really got that locked. So, um, I'm gonna switch. I, I guess we already spoke a bit about spirituality. Is there anything else you guys wanted to say about that? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm still trying to, but I also especially appreciated that scene well not appreciate but I, I was very interested in that scene where when Ari was born like a council of Obia people just showed up at her house um to investigate the nature of her birth <laughs> like they were investigating whether she had jacket because she just too black she look a bit too black um investigating her birth whether she was a jacket and 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 attempting to identify the the prime christy mark i was like is this a real th- i need to go ask my mother if she's ever heard of yeah like what that. the heck but i thought that was so interesting <laughs> because um stories that i've heard about um my family uh, my maternal side of my family is from portland rural portland and uh, they talk about Obia very, like it's not a hushed thing. It's still a little hushed, but it's a it's a it's a thing that's it's just said. It's like any other word. It's like any other way of being. So you'll hear say, "Boy, you know, said that woman Obia the Obia man," or she said Obia pan the next woman, and that's why she gone mad. And Cardella, I think, didn't want to shy away from that. Because it's such it's such an integral part of our cultural retention, what we managed to retain, and how we've managed to um, sort of amalgamate it into the way that we that we that we perceive the world, that we see the world, that we that we go about living our lives. It's deeply infused in how we do things, and it's not something that we have to point out. And I think that, and that was what was great about the spiritual aspects of this for me. Like, it's not something that she pointed out. It's not something where she went, all right, here's the part about Obia, guys. Um, it was, no, this is, this is how they live their lives. And it's, it's, it's a natural part of how they converse. It's a natural part of how they are and who they are. So, yeah. Yeah, I really love that it wasn't a spectacle at all. It wasn't a, this is the part where we talk about Obia. I'm going to explain to you in a paragraph or two about what Obia is and where it came from. It was, it was just there. And there were parts that were very obvious. There were things that just weren't. It it was just who they are. So Moshe gets a dream and then decides to, uh, this woman needs to go find her. And okay, go take a bus and go look for the woman. Like, this was just so, okay, this is how this works. This is, and, and I feel like that's very much, I don't want to say it's a space that a lot of Jamaicans, well, most Jamaicans in, but there are lots of Jamaicans where, and even to some degree, some Jamaicans, even the ones who aren't, 100% believers and I think we spoke about that a bit earlier in terms of what the fuck does belief even mean if something is there it's just there um but even if you aren't a believer you at some level understand that there's something beyond you 
So even if it's just the point to where, you know, and that we're missed with that, you know that there is a that there to be missed with. So I really liked how she wrote it. It wasn't it wasn't a spectacle. And again, it felt like it was written for a Jamaican audience. It wasn't written for to explain to someone that this what is happening is what Obia looks like. True. 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 What are you guys' thoughts on the women in this yes. book? Because I love <laughs> the women in this book. I loved how they were written. I loved who they were. Like, we're just tired for agree with Uno. Like, I just have I know, to say Rachel. yes. That's Rachel. it. Like her, Rachel. Ashley loves Rachel. <laughs> so. Oh, my God. I was just about to say that you guys are probably tired to hear me say that I stan Rachel, but I stan Rachel. Like, she's badass and she's just... Like, the the I spoke earlier about this book making me laugh out loud. And I think the very first laugh out loud moment I had was... Or maybe it wasn't, but like the standout laugh out moment I had was right at the beginning of the book. Um, when Rachel was just like, yo, today's the day, man, I just go left this man because in my time, and like, you just don't see that. You don't see that. You see the long suffering wife, you know, who is devoted and who just like, you know, like who just takes all of the crap. And I mean, she was smarter than Noah. She had to be his, basically like his translator because he couldn't read and she could read. And it's like, him don't treat her good and him not giving her a child and she wants a child. It's like, it's just, uh, <laughs> she made a decision right then and there and then fate had other plans. But uh, I really liked that. I liked the, the decisiveness that she was as a, that she had as a character. And, um, I aspire to be like that in, in many ways. The woman in this book, stood out a lot for me i know we've said this like a million times on these um these podcast episodes but the women in these books are just not we haven't seen women like this before they're very what's the word i'm they're very strong-willed they're very they take charge and i hate that i can't find a, a more suitable adjective to describe them like I'm thinking about um Ari's grandmother um that summer when it was getting close to cane cutting time I think and Ari's quote-unquote Christy curse started flaring up and how her grandmother kind of just came to her rescue immediately and knew exactly what to do knew all of the different concoctions what she need for mix and and uh, it go it it goes back to something we've always said about women always being at the center of anything concerning healing and well-being and the extent of her knowledge and not just because it's something that she's she her family has experienced but she would have had to have studied um and paid close attention to what is necessary cuz we saw where her mother had her mother gave her pillows to sit on but then the grandmother said them nana pillow and I them they name pillow and then when she told the mother to go into the bag there were like well like 20 something separately wrapped pillows and then um the grandmother said yeah yeah for wrap them individually because then no air won't go in there. Like there will be no airs in the bags. 
there would be no air in the bags and the pillows will remain, you know, very, very soft and cushiony and provide and be effective when they're in use. And I really big up the grandmother. Yeah. But and then Ari, of course, I, I feel I feel like Ari needs an entire episode herself because there's so much to talk about with her. Um, like ever since Shaban, she's a defender of the people. And I particularly love that scene where she she went to that rally, that PNP rally. And I also love that Cordella called Michael Manley Joshua and didn't write Michael Manley in there. I really like that because that's how people knew him. People knew him as Joshua. And uh, I love that. You know, actually, I was having a conversation with my parents recently about that. I didn't know that they called him Joshua. And yeah. uh, they were explaining. I, was like, I didn't I was know. Like, oh. I didn't know that. I that feel was like that was such a nice inside joke. Uh, and she also doesn't say jungle. I don't know why though. Instead of saying when she's referring to jungle, she says. Oh, I've jungle? actually heard that before. I've actually heard that before. Yeah. Oh wait, That's, yeah, I've heard that. I think. I think. It may be because it's downtown. Um, it's in there. That's where I've heard it before. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh gosh, and I love that. I knew where it was, and I was just like, I love these. I I don't know. I feel like these little tiny clues that I don't know if writers intentionally do to say, yeah, this is Jamaica. Because, like, I know Nicole Dennis Blend did it with Patsy, and I thought she did it intentionally when I asked her about it. She's like, she didn't even think about it. It was when she referred to, she referred to pear trees growing in the garden and, like, in the yard. And I was just like, any American or anyone who's not from Jamaica reading this is going to think of an American you know, pear. But you as a Jamaican, we're not you know about that avocado. There's a pear tree in the yard, it's an avocado. <laughs> I I love that. I love reading those things. Yeah, I love because like reading. she she didn't have to mention anything specifically. You know who Joshua is. You know why he's called Joshua. She mentioned the rod, and everybody know that the rod of correction. And I just thought that was so that was so brilliant. Like unless you're a Jamaican or unless you're somebody who has studied Jamaican um, political history during the seventies, like you wouldn't you wouldn't immediately. Um, get that 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 clue you wouldn't that you wouldn't immediately pick up on that and i absolutely love the sort of emotional and dare i say spiritual um revelation um and spiritual moment that ari had during that she finally found her calling or like everything that she'd done in her life before almost made sense to her um here was someone who who is identifying a lot of the feelings that she would have had or maybe sparked something in her. And I thought that was, again, so brilliant because when I speak with anybody who um, grew up during that time and who considers themselves um, a, a comrade or a socialist, um, it was that moment, well, not that specific one, but it was their interaction with Joshua that sparked something in them 
that fueled their their interest in politics and their own political activism, regardless of the the the, the way in which they chose to express that it was that interaction and I thought it was so great because I thought it reflected not just Aryan's own spiritual political transformation and connection but it was a spiritual connection for a lot of Jamaicans it was a huge deal for a lot of Jamaicans it was a big fucking deal because it would it would then go on to change like the course of Jamaican history and how we and and just Jamaica on a whole so yeah I want to say that uh, for any reader who started out this book and just kind of felt like it didn't grab you at first especially if you're Jamaican and you kind of get annoyed with the repetitive nature that it the English and the patho right after feels like just continue reading because it really does get better. This book is brilliantly written and I think you would like it. So just push through the first couple bits of it because it gets better. I don't know if I'm projecting, but she does something with Ari's career that to me felt very tongue-in-cheek about how a lot of people who would have started off in advocacy, a lot of people would have started off in socialism, end up in their later years so I'm very curious to hear you guys thoughts on that when when you get there because it feels very tongue-in-cheek to me but it could just be my me projecting based on what I've seen (laughs) or you could be right a lot especially a lot of people who would have come from that generation Mm -hmm. who ended up in advocacy and who went on to politics Well, no, nothing to politics, but yeah, get to the end of the book and then we can talk about that and then not release that part of our podcast episode. Put it on Patreon. Yeah. Uh, But what did you think about, I, I, Christina, you wanted to talk about Moshe's skin? Yeah. I, I, I don't think I've figured out exactly what I think about Moshe's skin yet. Like but what I what I was what thinking of is um just what I had mentioned before about how because of his non-discernible ethnicity or racial makeup, how a lot of people had to confront their ideas of race and what race means. And again, I think it's like a subtle commentary on this whole fucking notion of race and how its entire makeup is based in white supremacy. Um, so I think she did a lot with using his skin to, I guess, interrogate um, how we categorize features um, into to a particular race. Because, you know, he had the two-toned hair where... Part of it is black and kinky. The next part is blonde and straight, where people don't know how Fumek heads or tails of him, as my mother would say. Um, also, this idea of featurism, you know, having having particular features that people associate with Africanness or an African um, heritage or identity, and I just it 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 just 
it was very interesting because it, it was such a point of conversation for a lot of people, the people in Tumila. And even when I read the part where he was, where he got the scholarship in to that UK university and he went there and when he was doing the application, when it asked for race and how that became a conversation that he had with the interviewer, where the interviewer was asking him, what is other? Because he ticked white and other on it and he had his internal monologue where he's like, other is a word that you created. You know, you put it on the paper. You should know what it means. Why I put it there if it didn't have any sort of significance. And I thought it was just like a, a, a jumping point for this larger conversation that, that happens a lot, actually. I remember it happening recently with a, a few African models, um, Adut Akech and uh, another one I don't remember her name right now but this this idea of uh, whether they're famous whether they're really popular because of how their features align with um, what we consider to be Eurocentric Eurocentric features even though they are fully African women um, or are they considered exotic or are they exotified because of, um, and this is adult, because they fit a particular kind or a particular section of the African continent. So I thought, I thought it was interesting, the use of his skin to, to, to cause all of this conversation, as Beyonce said, you know? So yeah, that's that's what I had. And then the fact that his skin is so fickle, I thought that was very interesting. I haven't completely worked out my thoughts on that yet. But this, the, the fact that literally anything can cause him to blister or bleed, um, like it's one of the reasons why he didn't talk a lot in his youth and even when he got older because it, it hurt his mouth so much for him to speak um, too many words. So I found that very interesting. I'm still working out what that means to me, but yeah. Do you picture him as being albino? I did that first and then someone said, it's not like him adundus either. And I was just like, oh, he's not. Okay. I don't. I honestly don't know what he looks like. And then when he was in the UK, someone, um, the racist old guy, called him a derogatory term for Chinese people. And I was just like, wait, what? What does he look like? I, I, I don't know. I really don't know to picture him at all. So she says that she didn't want people to be able to picture him. So yeah, it was just how he looked. Because it was so, like, it... He was just... Him just look like a croaking Did somebody actually call him that? I'm trying to remember. No, I don't think so. But, like, the old lady in the in the graveyard thought he was Danish, I think. I think she said Romanian. No, man, she thought he was... I don't know. Everyone has their own idea of what they think is, but... It also made me reflect on how, even as a black person, the biases I have towards being around other people, um, whether they're white or black, and why I may, why that informs how I react or treat people. So, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that she decided to use a very ambiguous skin to make a comment on race. 
Because at first I thought it was going to be one of those books where it's, oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the human are. race. We're all human beings kind of thing. But that's not the message at yeah, all. Yeah, but she's not doing that at all. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciated that because I was scared when I read the synopsis <laughs> of the book. I was just like, oh, let's not do this. But it, it was it was a really... It's a really good social commentary on race that I don't think I've seen. I think we've all seen the the swaps where it's like, oh, what if a black person was in a white person's mm-hmm. body or the other way mm-hmm. around? And and TV loves doing that. And that that's all a bit played out. But what happens when you genuinely don't know and you can't tell someone's race? How do you... Like you really have to confront your bias. How do you interact with them? And yeah. I think we're good. I think this is a good episode. All right, let's wrap this up. Uh, so what are you guys reading? Are you reading anything? Yes. Uh, I'm reading Queenie. I borrowed it from the Rebel Woman Lit Library. <laughs> a funny book so far that sounds it like really I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah get your subscription guys <laughs> i'm joking while i while i juggle all the the book club picks i'm gonna start reading wayward lives beautiful experiments by sadia hartman it was our recommendation and i'm actually really excited to read it i know that it's something that i'm not gonna read in one go it would definitely be a long haul thing because i've read some of her writing before it's a non-fiction i've read some of her writing before and i know that she tackles diff not difficult but I'll use difficult anyway, concepts, and I know that I'll need some time to really absorb what she's saying. So I think I'm going to be reading this for a little while. What are you reading, Jane? I'm trying to find the name of what I'm reading. It's very not book club-ish at all. So I don't know if I'm even going to mention it. I don't know the name of the book I'm reading. I can't find it. It's a math book, though. It's a Lord math history book mercy. that I'm reading. Math history. Okay, with the, on that note, guys. Oh, here it is. The Joy of X, a guided tour of math from a 1 to infinity. Tour? No, hang up. Sorry, don't want that. That's not, not me. What big of yourself, Jane? <laughs> All right. Um, well, yeah, it was fun talking to you guys. And I'm looking forward to hearing what your final thoughts are on a tall I'm history. I'm going to make sure I finish show. this. I finished it a while now and I don't have <laughs> final thoughts on it just yet because I know that's a lot of the concepts will still be going on in my head for a while. I love that you yeah. think mm-hmm. we'll have final thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> of course we will. No, because she said she doesn't have any. My girl, if you know none, <laughs> we not have none. Oh, I'm not bright. I know, I know things that I Right. All right. Let's okay. not have this conversation. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. 
If you like our podcast, I don't know why you haven't subscribed yet. You just listened to us ramble for a long time. Well, you can leave a review on Apple. Someone left an interesting review earlier about Team Spoiler. Team Spoilers are okay. Yes. And I I saw you post that and I was just like, thank you. We have sensible (laughs) people who follow this book club and I just. uh, (laughs) Yes, it makes sense. She said it makes sense. (laughs) No. All right, sis. But there seems to be a lot of you, actually. Are, are you I'm scheming. Something? Don't worry, I'm scheming. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we need to warm up to them. I'm not sure yet, but I think you should. We might need Just to try to with them. I, I I don't know. I don't know. Like we'll COVID, we have to live with it. Um. <laughs> oh boy! Wow. But yeah, if you guys like the podcast, leave a review on Apple. And if you like the podcast, you like the club, and you would like to support what we do, subscribe on Patreon. There's some really cool shit that's dropping on Patreon. So you can go and do that. So As yeah. a Patreon subscriber, I recommend... You're very biased in this. Um... Let's ignore that part. <laughs> but... Uh, but you are it's helping to pay the podcast bills so <laughs> you are biased even though you are a subscriber True. Um, but it's still but yeah. some cool shit objectively there's some cool shit that's on there bye bye guys bye. Bye. wait that's not a good wrap up bye. I don't know. Do I wrap up then? Say bye. Bye. Christina, what at? Okay, let me say. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. It was amazing. I think it was a really good conversation. I think you'll enjoy it and you'll want to read more of Cordella's work, like myself, when you've finished listening. So, thanks. Bye, guys. Really, Ashley? After you come after Christina, oh, oh, strong, I didn't know. I was Girl, saying bye right, to you guys. I didn't know I was saying oh. bye to the audience. <laughs> bye, everyone. <laughs> Happy gone already. It gone already. <laughs> <laughs>